0: Matthew, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. How are you?
1: I'm good. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, your claim to fame is you started Saber Interactive, one of the bigger um, video game studios out there. And uh, you guys also worked on the uh, the Halo franchise. A lot of people know that about. Maybe you can tell us a little bit how you got into the industry in the first place. Um, I researched and I know you studied law. Um, how did you get started with a video game production company?
1: Uh, I, I I would say it was more happenstance than anything else. I uh, I was I was practicing law after I graduated from Penn uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania. And uh, God, I got to remember when that was. Now I think it was all the way back in uh, God, it was ninety dating myself, 96. And um, I went and I uh, I didn't want to practice for a large law firm. So I kind of went and I hung my own shingle. Um, and I worked uh, primarily with Russian speaking clients. I learned Russian when I was in college. And I thought it would be cool to practice, use my language skills, which to me always seemed more fascinating than the practice of law. And so uh, I started a small, I call it a boutique firm, uh, call it what you want to call it. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that I needed to do something to support myself, so I started uh, a, a small practice uh, uh, not far from Coney Island or Brighton Beach, which is where all the, uh, the Russian community was, and I think a lot of them still are to this day, and um, I practiced for, I don't know, it was maybe no more than a year and a half before a client came into, a, into, into my office and um, introduced himself. As someone who had just moved to the country, who was looking for some assistance or some guidance on some immigration questions and um, was in the video game space and had a PhD in computational geometry and applied math, had written his own game engine, which is basically a piece of software that enables for the uh, the development of and the, and the rendering of, of of video games. And uh, we became fast friends. I said, "I like what you're doing better than what I'm doing," and I kind of quit my day job and went to Borders Books and Barnes and Noble, bought a bunch of books on game design, and started a company with with, with my partner who was from St. Petersburg and uh, Russia. And um, from from there, we you know went and hired some of his old uh, his old um, partners, or I guess uh, some old, some old employees that he had worked with when he was living in Russia. And, um, we created a small game called will rock, which was a, uh, a little first person shooter game where you fight mythological creatures. And we were kind of copying a game that was popular at the time called serious Sam. Um, but the game looked great because we had really good, uh, engineers and some really good artists that we had hired and, uh, Ubisoft, which is a large publicly traded video game company based out of, uh, Paris. Liked it and ended up giving us a shot. They so they signed up the game, um, and we uh, we ended up selling you know a decent number of copies of it, and it led to our next project, which ultimately led to bigger and better things. So, before you know, by the time all was said and done, we were uh, we had multiple products under development, and um, we were uh, we, we were making a significant number of games, and that, that it's been twenty years, so it's been a while since then. Sure. it sounds fascinating
0: and you know most entrepreneurial journeys seemingly today are you try to break into a world that's full of competition there's there's so much already out there and there's um, literally on the marketing side it seems to be the most saturated um, when I when I talk to people here in the valley, It's rare that you break into something that's completely open ground, but there's there's not a lot of people working on that similar project already. But video games is one of those things a lot of entrepreneurs wouldn't touch, right? Because it is the problem that you have to, that the capital investment, at least now, seems to be huge, and then you need to have some decent distribution. Um, Well,
1: yes and no. I mean, I would say certainly when I got into games, it was a lot more expensive, in some respects, to break in than it is now. I mean, while games have continued to evolve, um, and um, you know, if you want to create a really triple triple A high end experience, you are going to have to spend considerable sums of money to make it. The barrier of entry is actually, in some respects, gone down. And I'll, I'll let me let me explain why. Um, when I started, uh, there were like, there was no such thing as digital distribution in video games, and so you needed to have a significant amount of capital to actually get your games to market. And so the expensive part of making a game was um, having the discs printed and having the distribution networks to get it into Target and Walmart and Costco and in GameStop and Best Buy or wherever and and a bunch of other retail establishments which no longer exist, right? Um, And so the lion's share of development was not about the development rather, but about the distribution angle. Um, and games themselves were uh, I wouldn't say they were cheap to make, but they were they were significantly cheaper. And the reason for that is because, um, you know, when a, when a computer can't render high definition artwork, you can you can cheapen out and and, and use low definition artwork, which makes it uh, low resolution artwork, which makes it cheaper to make a game. Right. So that's why many mobile games cost less, for example, than a premium console, or high end PC games, because. Um, at least on the development side, because it's it, it doesn't require quite the same uh, a skill set or b you know, uh, high end artwork to, uh, to display on the screen to make the game actually look good and to make it sell. So over time, what's happened is uh, retail has become less and less important, which meant that you no longer need those significant investments in retail and to buy you know, X million numbers of copies of a game and bring them to market and take the risk that you're never going to be able to sell them because now digital distribution has enabled you to basically sell a game in real time and just to pay a small portion or on average 30% at the moment to, to the platform holder. Um, but the games themselves have become much more expensive to create. So, and the reason for that is primarily because we're approaching an ever increasing, you know, demand for, you know, for realism because our, uh, the latest round of, of consoles and PCs will support a higher degree of realism and people expect it. You know, but having said that, um, it's not. It's you know, graphics are not the end all be all of video games, and um, and there are a lot of games that come out that that aren't graphically beautiful, that uh, that didn't cost you know two hundred million dollars to make or a hundred million dollars to make or whatever that might be, that look great and play great. We have a game called Valheim, which is um, not not part of my uh my division of embracer so i'm the ceo of saber saber was acquired by embracer group in, in in stockholm um and stockholm has multiple game development companies and one of them is a company called coffee stain which is publishing this game valheim which has sold over seven million copies in the last couple of months that game it's really nice but budget was the, for development was low it was very low um, and visually, it's it's fine. I mean, it, but but really, it's not about the visuals in that case. It's about the gameplay. And so, um, it's not always the case that the visuals are the most important thing. But if you are Activision or EA, and you are trying to position yourself as a as a developer or a publisher of AAA product, you can't help but fight that fight. But when you are uh, when you're a company like mine, or many of the companies within my parent company, Embracer. You can focus more on the mid-cap type of experience where you can really focus on gameplay and mechanics and what gamers like over graphics. That doesn't mean that we don't put out games that are nice graphically, but it also means that you don't necessarily need to do that. Um, but having said that, I mean, uh, there are other reasons that game development costs have gone down. A one of them is because of the availability of really solid engines, uh, game engines, which enable for the rapid creation of games that wasn't really possible years ago. So for example, Epic, uh, one of my favorite companies, actually, that we work very closely with, has the Unreal Engine. And Unreal makes it really easy to to develop games. Not that, not that it makes it cheap. You still need to develop the high-end artwork. But to get a game up and running with Unreal is a lot easier than not having a third-party engine that you have at your disposal. Same thing with Unity. Um, it's another solid engine better i would say for mobile product um whereas uh unreal was better for console and pc premium types of products but um so generally speaking uh you can make games that are inexpensive um and there are a lot of developers out there that are trying to make games but when you know when you think of games normally you're thinking of the call call calls of duty or call of duties or and and the halos and you know of the world which are expensive to make um but we try not to we 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 do games like that but we try to 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 create games that are across the spectrum and and that appeal to audiences who aren't as concerned with graphics and where we can actually produce a game for five six seven million dollars or less in some cases and in some cases more and 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 make a big return on it so um I think one of the reasons to answer your, your question as fully as
0: I possibly can. Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. yes. You know, I'm 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 always fascinated by the movie industry, right? Yeah. And one thing that I think is often not taken seriously is the 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 writing, the dialogue, the screenplay, um, because. It isn't as important. So the graphics have gotten more important. The distribution has been gotten more important. And it seems to be made for an audience that doesn't pay a lot of attention, right? It has other things going on, but wants like a basic narrative to play out over and over again. And that's what the, the movie industry um, responded to, it seems. But still, it seems, well, when, when I see how it's made, there's so much effort involved. There's so many people behind the cameras, right, that make that actually work. And then there's still the editing going on. So it's a monumental effort, it seems, in terms of coordination as project management. And then it still costs, what, $50 million or $100 million? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't have enough... Um, I don't know anything about how to make an actual uh, game. How many people... You said just $5 million. How many people are actually involved? And how long does it take? Is it, is it a six-month effort, 50 people, and a few designers, a few coders? How, how do I imagine making an actual game from scratch? So, look, you know, uh, $5 million would certainly be on the low end. I would
1: say, you know, the average... The average game is, is 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 considerably more than that, but there are very small games that you know that people enjoy, that, you, that can be done for even less than five million, right? And then there's games uh, that are AAA. When they say when I say AAA, AAA usually means I don't even necessarily think AAA means quality anymore. I think AAA just means. How, how big of a production the game was, right? You could have game, you could have movies that cost $200 million to make that are garbage. And you can have games that are $200 million to make that are garbage. And you can have games that cost a million to make or an indie movie that costs, you know, a, a small amount of money to make, and they can be great. Um, so, uh, but, but generally speaking, I mean, games require uh, a, a, a significant or relatively significant staff. Um, to create uh, a compelling experience. You need you need engineers, obviously, meaning software engineers who understand the code. If you have multiplayer components to your game, you need to have uh, multiplayer engineers, you know how to, to create basically or help to, to craft the online experience. On the technical side, you need game designers. These are the people that actually think up the levels of the games and think up the actual gameplay loops. You need uh, level designers. These are the people that work closely with the game designers to create levels, which illustrate uh, exactly what um, you know the, the designer has in his mind, right, or her mind. Um, and then you need artists. You need artists who can create the environments. You need artists who can create the individual characters. And then you need animators. These are people who actually take these characters and bring them to life. You need AI programmers, which take these characters and actually make them seem intelligent. Um, you need um, God. I don't want to offend anybody. But I'm missing them. You need texture artists who are the basically the artists that paint the models and the environments. And then you have special effects artists and sound engineers and musicians and voiceover actors and motion capture, you know, uh, actors. Um, and then you need producers who are responsible for making sure that all of this happens. Um, and uh, and then you need guys like me who are on the business side who can make sure the game can actually get to market and be sold. Um, and uh and then you need quality assurance. You need the QA teams who can actually play the games and make sure that they're they're free of bugs and and, and not something that's gonna annoy people more than it's going to entertain them. So I mean, and so just just by mentioning each of those some people wear multiple hats. There are teams where there's five, six, seven people who are artists and engineers or designers and artists. Um but generally speaking, you know, the the game development is becoming more and more uh, specialized like anything else. And so if you want to create a great experience with amazing an- animations, you really want somebody who just animates. Right. Um, if you want some beautiful artwork, you want to have somebody who's done it many times before. And so um, it's a production. I mean, is it is it as big of a production as films? Um Generally speaking, not. I mean, sometimes, sometimes it is. Obviously, you've heard of games with huge budgets, um, but really, it's um, it's 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 a more confined experience, I would say. And there's also just as a side note, it's a very international experience, right? You can games are made in Croatia and Italy and China and Russia, just as they are in California or New York or or, or Austin or anywhere else. And obviously, it's less expensive in certain territories than others. And there really is no uh, union for games or is it like like there is in uh in the in the film space so you don't have to necessarily worry not not that you know not that we don't take care of our people but you know uh unions generally make things more expensive and we don't have that as a um as a, a something else that we need to deal with currently if you ask me whether or not i'm opposed to unionizing game uh, game developers I'm fine with it if they feel their interests need to be protected that way. We try to do as best as we can to make sure that our team is happy. And, uh, and we feel that a healthy healthy competition is probably the best way to keep your employees happy. And we've really made that one of our uh, fo- focal points at, at, at our
0: company. So to answer more I find questions it, than yeah, you yeah, 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 I find <laughs> it fascinating. When, when, you, when you think about a new title, how does this decision process work? It's people pitching you ideas. I, I would think of a Hollywood comparison. It's pitching you scripts and pitching you ideas, and then you eventually let it brew a little bit, and you, you get closer to that decision point. Or is it you, you, you really incubate those ideas? You hand out budgets, and people have some time to play with this until it's a, like a full-blown demo you can actually make a decision over it.
1: You know, in every company, it's different. In Saber, uh, generally speaking, for the first twenty years or so of our history, uh, or I would say, and shouldn't say twenty because we've only been around now for twenty, so probably the first eighteen years, usually I would I would be the one coming up with the concept. I would say, hey, I think we should run with something like this, and let's go get a license for it. Um, so in our in our case, for example, I um we we released a game called World War Z, which was uh, based off of the Brad Pitt. Um, movie um that was you know written by max the book was written by max brooks uh there was a very very popular game called left for dead that um people loved it was a four-person cooperative game where you battled you know zombies and um it sold extraordinarily well but there was no competition for it and there was no one didn't seem like there was any intention by valve uh, who is the um, the creator uh, and publisher of the game, to come out uh, with another version of it in the future. And so I said, hey, I think there's a market opportunity here for a four-person co-op zombie shooter. And we can either go out and we can find our own license and may create our own license you know zombie world and hope that it, and spend a lot of money on marketing and see if it works. Or we can go to the marketplace and see if there's any licenses that we think would fit what we want to do. And it just so turned out that War War Z was available. there was some initial skepticism about the film before it came out and actually did really really well. Um, and so as, a, as an independent developer we had an opportunity to uh, to grab the license at a, at a reasonable for a reasonable amount of money. And we created a game which was in some respects similar to Left 4 Dead and the game just, you know, did exceedingly well. Um another example is uh I um I um I have a I have a, a friend who lives um in the New York area who's uh, Um, an executive at the NBA, and I happened to have been at his wife's birthday party. I was in a member of a dad band. I play guitar. And uh, after after the party, maybe I had a a drink or two more than I should have. I came up to him and I said, you know, I really want to make an NBA basketball game. And he goes, sure, come into the office. We'll try to figure out if we can get you a license if you have the right pitch. I I didn't have any pitch. I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do, but I went into the office and I thought about it on the way. And I'm like, you know, there hasn't been an NBA jam game in a long time. And so when I went in there and they showed interest in working on a new game, I I pitched them a game called NBA playgrounds, which was basically like a, an arcade style NBA game. And we, um, we ended up making that game and doing extremely well with it. Um, And it was basically just because of a, a, a chance Back, you know, backyard party that I had at at an NBA executive's house. So, um, in our case, you know, the games have basically been cultivated either by by me or by members of our team with specific ideas and you know, and experimentation um, uh, on on gameplay mechanics or on um, looking for market opportunities where we thought they existed. Um, but for many it's, you know, uh, it's, there's a pitch process, right? And so when we started out in the, in, the, in, the game space, we would come up with the concepts, we would pitch them to publishers and the publishers, if they liked them would sign them up and then they would, um, uh, you know, give us a royalty and pay us the development fee to make the games. We end, ended up almost never seeing royalty because of their accounting, um, but that was that was really when uh, when we were on the pitching side and not on the side where we were being pitched. Now that we've been acquired and we have substantial resources at our disposal to fund third-party development, we're starting to look at some pitches. We're starting to do a little bit more of that um, because there are independent developers with fantastic ideas that don't have the resources to get those game ideas done. And I would say Saber and Embracer generally is probably. Better positioned and more interested in finding these teams and these uh, products than almost anybody else in the industry. I, I, I hadn't sold a game to a top five AAA uh, publicly traded, a game company in in a decade, and the reason was because they're just not interested in anything other than massive, massive, massive titles. Which is why you're seeing games like Valheim come out of Embracer or Fortnite. Come out of epic um because uh a lot of that risk is taken in that kind of mid-market space um and the the biggest players don't aren't interested in those risks they're really just interested in creating a product that they know is already going to sell because they've released five or six or seven previous versions of it
0: kind of sounds like hollywood yeah right well we have these big movie franchises that seem to be going on forever everyone kind of is bored to death by them, but they still yep. sell well because the stars are in it, right? And in between we have the indie productions that are often, you can see it's too low a budget. It's not as enjoyable for what mm-hmm. we are used to at least. And in between, this is where the innovation sometimes happens or maybe often happens. Can you give us an idea of the the market size that video games have become? It seems like the billions, the amount of billions grows by the year and maybe also what the audience is typically like, because we all think this is typically 99% male dominated. So,
1: you know, the stats are interesting and I'm looking at them all the time. And, and frankly, I I have to go back and look and see what the actual numbers are right now. But it is in the tens of billions of dollars. I just don't know the exact number. Um, but uh the demographics are an interesting conversation because um, you know if you ask somebody, oh, what what is the game? A game? What, what what are game revenues? This I do remember. It's about sixty percent mobile and forty percent PC and console. But what does that mean? Sixty percent mobile. I don't really know what that means, right? Because uh, when you when you're thinking about gamers, you're not you're not thinking about mobile gamers. Probably you're thinking about people sitting at their computer, sitting at their um, you know at their console, their Xbox or PlayStation or their Switch and 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 playing games and so is playing blackjack on your phone are you a gamer yes you are you are a gamer right but but you know and uh, and, and certainly there's a, a vast i mean the 60 percent really comes from i think the revenues that are generated but i don't think that necessarily speaks to you know margins right i mean i think that mobile games generally there's there's uh they're they're cheaper to make generally but the costs of user acquisitions are exceedingly high and most mobile games fail and so uh i don't really have a really good grasp we we don't do we we have divisions within our company that do mobile who can speak much more intelligent intelligently on this topic i you know our focus has always been on the pc pc console space um and so really i can only speak to that space with with any degree of intelligence and and in that space i can tell you it, it it is male dominated um and it skews younger but younger is you know a relative term now right because i um, I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be 50 years old in October. Uh, and I played games when I was a kid, right? I mean I played in television and ColecoVision and Atari. Um and so uh and I still play. I don't play as much as I used to, to be perfectly honest. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but um, you know, I uh, but that's really been the audience, and that's the audience that 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 games are created for. And so I think um the reason that and I believe this to be true. That um, games are typically a male-dominated uh, space, or because most of the developers are uh, are, are male. And our company, we, we, you know, we're we're making a very very active effort to find to find female you know developers, um, and and to recruit female developers. And and we're we're having a lot of success doing that, but it's been a challenge. Um, and, but the more female developers we have, the more games we'll be able to make that are actually, you know, uh, that appeal to the female demographic. So what I think happens is you have young males making games and they're making games for themselves. And so that's the reason I think we're kind of stuck a little bit in this cycle, so to speak, because, um, because it's just, uh, because of the reasons that I stated, I think it's just, you know, uh, that, that's, that's the way, uh, this industry has basically progressed. And I think, um, you know, uh, I don't really I can't really explain to you why that's the case. Why? You know, but but if you look at if you look at it, it's mostly shooting games and that are popular in the console and PC space and um, and sports games. And those are typically, you know, things that are geared towards male players. But I think that's going to change and I hope it's going to change because there's a huge market out there that we are not exploring. And just like, you know, China opened up for video games and all of a sudden there was uh, billions and billions of dollars of potential revenue out there. I think if we start to produce games for for segments of, of, of you know, of the populace that are that are underrepresented or that or that, that aren't being developed for, I think we're we're going to just continue to expand our, our, our market. Um, and generally speaking, the market is growing year to year. I mean, uh, certainly certainly quarantine uh, and staying at home accelerated the number of uh, players that are playing video games. But I, um, you know, I think that number is not, is not, you know, moving in reverse right now. I think we've basically accelerated our growth relative to Hollywood. Uh, and I think that, you know, people, younger people specifically are, are more interested in playing games and going to movie theaters. And so, um, I think that uh, it's just been a natural progression. I remember when we started this business, we were kind of like, you know, the ugly stepchild. Nobody wanted us anywhere near, uh, you know, well, oh, you make video games. We don't care about that. We care about Hollywood. And I would say we're now finding that Hollywood is courting us in a way which is uh, it's, it's uh, I mean, I don't know what they call sweet revenge, but it's kind of cool. Uh, so I don't know if I really answered your question or if I went on a, off on a tangent there, but I wanted to give you a little bit of perspective from from,
0: from where I sit. I think both are very interesting, and fascinating to me. And I see the, the, uh, this, this gender divide, so to speak, in the video game industry. I found it interesting that, you know, I have two children. I have a daughter and a son. Both were interested in more or less the same things when they were younger. And now my son plays a lot of video games and my daughter would never touch them. She has just zero interest in it. And she plays it yep. once. She's like, Okay, why would I ever do this? It makes no sense. For my son it's very addictive. As so it's right. wasn't for myself, right? So there seems to be something going on in puberty that men seem to be, boys seem to be very curious about the world out there. They simulate the world out there. They want to see how the world works. Even if it's a simulated world, it doesn't have to be a real one. You don't want to be killed by some animals, but you want more increasingly more difficult games that you want to play. And that seems to be very much of interest in the times of games that we have. So I, I, I agree with you. It might not stay that way. It might change completely. But so far, the games, the simulated realities we created, they seem to be... In that sense, would be, would be resemble in video games where there's action involved and there's uh, usually death involved or some kind of danger involved and we have to like become a hero for a moment, right? That mm-hmm. seems to be really appealing to boys. For girls, not so much. It's a, it's a, it happens, but it's relatively rare. There might be an equivalent as a girl video game too. Uh, I don't know if this have, will ever happen.
1: No, look, I I agree with you. I have I have a son and I have two daughters, and my daughters don't play, and my son plays all the time. I mean, he sits mm-hmm. up until two or three in the morning playing with his buddies, you know, on on his headphone, and we hear him, and we got to tell him to keep his to keep it down because we want to sleep, yeah. you know. Uh,
0: um,
1: I know the feeling. I know the feeling. It's very
0: pre-programmed, right? We think we are in control of our minds. As a, not as a kid, maybe less, but you know, as a, as an as an adolescent, we think we're in control of our actions. We're totally not. We're influenced by something that produces ninety nine percent of our daily occupation would we actually do that we've never put into our minds yes
1: at least not absolutely. consciously absolutely but look i think this a lot of this goes back to the point that i had made earlier which is i think our industry um needs to do a better job of courting women to create games i think women would 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 are are much better candidates to create games that would appeal to women than men are, right? Uh, you know, uh, I, I
0: still struggle to understand my daughters, right? So maybe, maybe, I don't know, think about the chefs, right? So all this, you, you would think typically the role of women earlier in, in, in human society was to provide food and to cook, right? That's also, mm-hmm. that's very common. But when you look at the chefs that are famous celebrity chefs, they're all male. So they seem yeah, to understand that's... cooking better. I don't know what's going on there. Or maybe they're just better at marketing.
1: You know, uh, it's a deep conversation for us to have. <laughs> I, I know, I, I know. There's no easy answers. Look, we have we have uh, very very talented women that work in our company. Um, you know, actually, not many are on the design side, and I think that may be the reason that our that our games are skewed more male. Um, yeah. But I, um, I look at you know, I, I think obviously the society, our society generally has, for, has been male dominated um uh, and um I think we're ignoring a huge segment of the market by not you know trying to 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 figure out or to, to why why it is that my that our sons will play video games and our daughters won't right because everyone likes to be entertained we're just probably not providing the right entertainment uh you know uh, for for particular audiences. So I mean obviously that's the generalization but I I, I think I think they're,
0: they're, that it just makes sense to me well, I think it's it speaks to this wider debate when um, when we are very concerned about the addictive qualities of video games. I, I felt that myself when I was really into video games. It was very difficult for me to stop it. And it really dominated my life for a couple of years. And then I was, I was done with it. And I'm like, OK, I'm, I'm done with it. I, I still love playing. But I always felt that this is something that was very hard for me to control. And then on the other hand, we also know that a lot of skills, abstract thinking skills and um, also the way you 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 are in a 3 d environment, all these skills are, are perfectly simulated and learned from these simulations from computer games so you are seeing the industry and you have a certain interest there what is your from from a personal view what do you feel is are these two things are they they balancing each other out or we should be more careful with the addictive potential
1: look you know that's a that's an interesting question um most of the games that Sabre has made over the years um have been premium games where you buy the game, you play it, and then you put it away uh the model the marketing model or the 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 model generally has shifted to one which is um which encourages repeat business which encourages games as a service where people continue to play um and some games have come across as I think you might call predatory in that respect and that they're always um, trying to encourage that addiction, and there's no question in my mind that there's a lot of games out there that have made a ton of money because of those addictive qualities. Um, I, you know, uh, I, you know, when I was when we were looking to sell our our, our company, um, there was uh, we ultimately sold to Embracer because we thought that Embracer had a better grasp and understanding of. Um, uh, of our business, because they're in our business, than anybody else. Um, And that they were, you know, genuinely concerned about a lot of the issues that we're talking about, whether it's diversification, whether it's environment, whether it's, um, whether it's predatory practices in in, in terms of games. Um, But, you know, it's a balance and it's a hard balance to to strike when you're actually in the business of making money by selling this product, right? And so um, I, I did look at to um uh we did talk to some private equity groups as well who were interested in investing in our company and one of the groups in particular was specifically concerned about the predatory nature of games and it's not something that i had really ever thought of uh, actually because i you know, from our perspective, it was like, "Wow, if we can get somebody to." You know, there's a name for people who spend that much money on games. We call them whales, right? That's what we call people who spend a lot of money on games, right? They're the big spenders, and you're always looking for those big spenders, right? That's, um, and so that's always kind of the holy grail of these games is getting people to go and do it, and so you got to balance those things. I mean, it's 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 hard, right? When you're when you're as removed when you're removed from it, and you don't realize. Okay, these are the people that are spending this money. Maybe they spent their last dime, right? If you don't think about it in those terms, then really you don't have a problem with it because you've distanced yourself from it. Um, so uh, you know, obviously, you know, we don't make games for for for, for small kids who um, who could potentially take their parents, you know, the, you know, uh, um, earnings or their parents' credit card and spend a lot of money. Our games are geared towards people who are older, and so. We kind, of hope, we kind of hope those people are more uh, more responsible. Um, and, you know, uh, whether whether they are or they're not, I, I guess, you know, ultimately I don't think that we've heard of significant problems with, with addiction. There are certainly people who spend way too much time in front of their computer playing games. And we don't think that's healthy, obviously. Um, but we also think that, you know, we're in a business where we're not um, – You know, we don't, at least in my business, we we haven't really depicted realistic graphic violence unless you can't fighting zombies. Um, You know, we do lots of sports games and we do vehicle simulation games. And so we try to be responsible in as many areas as we possibly can. And we certainly try to give back. Um, But by the same token, we can't we we don't want to create games that people don't buy or that people aren't willing to to spend money on. And so there's there's a little bit of a balance here. But if this were to become a bigger issue for us, I think that we would probably have to find different economic models. I mean, I guess the real question is the issue, the the addiction in terms of the number of hours of people playing or is the addiction more about how much money they're spending um, or is it or is it both? So but as those problems come up and as we hear about them, we don't ignore them. We don't brush them under the rug. We try to tackle them.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a difficult problem, because on one hand, obviously, what makes it addictive is a, is a positive quality. There's something positive that we are entertained, right? It's kind of, you can say the same thing about, about chemical drugs. They, they allow us to escape reality, and often, and I learned this from Jordan Peterson, is these drugs are harmful, but they're typically less harmful than the alternative, which is often suicide or just extreme depression. So... There is a, a gradual decline, and, and obviously when you think of video games, they're not as on that same level of harm that, say, a chemical drug could be, right? That some, some methamphetamine can kill you, um, the fentanyl can kill you really quickly. So we're not talking about the same level of addiction. I think we have to keep that also in perspective. Or Coffee makes us very addicted. I get headaches a day later if I don't drink coffee, and mm-hmm. we don't worry about it at all. So I think both are important, but I think it's it's this... We, we always have this fear that that our children basically get get swooped away into this other reality and they will never come back right they don't learn the life skills anymore so to speak they don't learn how to interact in the social environment because they're driven into this relatively lonely um, or maybe not lonely but it's certainly not a diff- the same kind of communication the same kind of social interaction and they're kind of Go there for ten years and then they hopefully come back. But as parents, we always feel like, "Whoa, that's a long time to wait," and you know, hope for the best.
1: And you know, I, Look, I, I I agree with what you're saying, but I, I really feel, um, and I can say this as a parent that um, really it's it's mobile devices that are that are the, the primary culprit, and social media is the primary culprit, um, and the ways in which our our our, our children communicate is the primary culprit. Because um, when I wanted to ask a girl on a date, I had to go to the wall phone and and dial the number, you know, and sneak into my room with a long cord and make that phone call and, and uh, you know, put myself out there, likely to get rejected, but that's what I had to do. Um, and today, you know, if you like somebody's, you know, instagram post, whatever they're going to get a clue that you like them right then and there and you know you can send a text message or there's a million other ways to communicate which are less direct um and i think that as a result of that people lose their ability to actually actively and normally socialize um i think we've basically taken that out of out of you know people's hands um maybe my example isn't particularly you know cogent but but for me it works you know i feel like uh You know um when you no longer you know you've probably had this experience because i certainly have someone does something that really upsets you and you write this long email and it's a nasty email and uh then you take a deep breath and hopefully you don't send it right um because it's so easy to do that if you picked up the phone and called somebody you would never ever say what you were going to say in that email right so i know i'm getting off the topic uh of, I, but i think this is all kind of related i think that it's we spend too much time on our devices and our devices are our primarily form a primary form of socialization even in the video game space right i mean my 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 son plays fortnite all the time and he talks to his buddy through fort, buddies through fortnite right i mean that's a, so um you know uh, get i tell my son all the time get out and play ball you know <laughs> (laughs) Go hang out with your friends. Sit in the same room as them. I mean, how many times have you seen your kids sitting in the same rooms and they're on the phone with other kids, right? They're all on their phone.
0: So, um, and I'm guilty of that too, frankly. Well, I'm not saying there's an easy way out. It's just we we can look at it and and I'm actually not worried about it because what what happens is we've seen these layers of extra communication that give you more choice to reject people without actually rejecting them. It's Mm -hmm. something that people want. Um, you when, when you're a VC, you're really happy that you now have Twitter inside of email because you don't have to go through all these emails anymore to find that one page that's of interest, right? So you have mm-hmm. Twitter, This self-qualifying. So you always set another layer between what's out there, the entropy, and what you consider really relevant. And that, that will only mushroom. I don't think there will ever be that we go back into our cave and talk to each other. I mean, ideally, yes, but I think the incentives are really heavily on the other side. And I think as long as... Um, all kinds of entertainment, I think if they they don't drive us into like like, like chemical issues with like abuse of substances and even those, I think if we don't learn how to cope with them on that one hand there isn't much we can do like the human brain is so malleable it's so adaptable if we are not ready to to cope with all these kinds of social media with all these kinds of entertaining devices that's our fault right that's that's our brain not reacting to this new environment and how are we going to change that when we merge with with, with machines in a couple of years we have even more options right so there is no way back i think unless you really say you you want to do want to live like the Amish people. But it's tough when you, you really have to have a lot of conviction to, to keep even your children in that same community because they want to see what's on the, outs, what's on the outside, right? And they are curious. Why should they stay in that community that doesn't have access to this technology? It's a really t- difficult pitch.
1: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I will say as a side note, you mentioned Twitter. To me, Twitter is like, uh, is the lowest of the low. You know, it's one, for, <laughs> it's one form communication, uh you know, one way communication which is responsible for more uh it's just people giving their opinion without being without the willingness to listen to somebody else's response and they're doing it by standing up on a stage. I can't stand it. I, I think that But some of them are valuable.
0: I, I'm with you, Matthew, but but it's 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 99% are completely useless and they're harmful. Mm-hmm. I agree. But there is one percent that's useful. Just just assume that, right? Or maybe it's mm-hmm. not even true, maybe it's even lower. But if you had an algorithm and a selective view on those 1% is selective, then you don't care about the 99%.
1: Yeah, but most people don't have that ability. I don't. I mean, I can't can't filter out. I mean, it either frustrates me or it frustrates me more. I mean, sometimes I look at some of these, you know, obviously you don't have to go much further than Trump to see, you know, somebody who should probably have tweeted a little bit less. But I kind of feel the same way about guys who are smart, like Elon Musk. Like sometimes you just say, you know what? Better not to say anything, you know, I mean, uh, I mean maybe he's going to get himself into trouble by, you know, by driving up or down the price of a particular security, or maybe he's going to say something which ultimately is, is harmful or, or, or is misinterpreted because it's taken out of context or because the context is tiny. And so, I don't know. I, I, I that, That's a side a side discussion, but no, we'll I, always I one for dialogue. <laughs> I know.
0: I find that really interesting because a lot of people say, well, because what happened now the last 10 years, people people take the quiet part that they wouldn't say, right, they, they would talk behind your back, but they take that quiet part of a conversation and they put it out there on a big display and they say, oh, this is harmful, right, I don't have my safe space anymore. And to one point, I agree with that, right, but on the other hand, I don't see a world where hiding information, where we're putting information in silos is a good idea. I. I do strongly believe that this free speech paradigm that the U.S. had, and I think we're overdoing it maybe temporarily, but in the long term, I think we're still underdoing it. We we have to get all these things out so it can be evaluated by other people, by machines, by whatever we want. But this is the source of, of, of incredible growth and specialization and productivity growth if we can get these things fixed. And I I think we be under... We're overreacting but we haven't seen the light of it there's so much more that will come to the light of day and i think this is a good thing even if it's shocking to us right Why, why are we even in this simulation in the first place
1: look i i certainly don't have all the answers right i uh i mean uh i uh i think that that uh, that ultimately time will tell uh you know wh- whether whether or not you know what which which things are, are are good and which things for us have been harmful i uh yeah i I, I personally, I, I feel like uh, you know, people talk about video games and talk about how it's harmful and it's in, and, I think,
0: shouldn't we curtail information because it's potentially harmful, or should we? And it is. I mean, it, 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 I see this with Twitter too. It puts me in an emotional tailspin for like half an hour before I come back and uh, you know I can kind of stable myself. It does happen. But is that Twitter's fault, or is that information, is it just our ignorance that we've been developing for hundreds of thousands of years, and finally we can, you know, fight our own ignorance? That's that's how it feels to me, is closer to the truth.
1: You, I mean, you might be right, but I think that the problem is that for the same reason people write the emails and then erase them, people write their, you know, make their, write their tweets or whatever you want to call them, and. And they just—they're just amplifying the worst or the best or whatever it might be of what they're feeling. And later on, they regret doing it. But once it's out there, it's out there, and there's no—there's no turning back. So, um, I much prefer speaking to somebody one-on-one than to stand on a—you know—a soapbox and, and 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 say something which I might regret to the entire world and then have to explain myself. Yeah. And I—I I, I bit my tongue quite a few times over the years. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm, honestly, I'm not sure what to do with it. I mean, I, I, I don't appreciate Twitter much because I feel it's a really good conversation and it's it's you get very, very weird feedback. And uh, But I, on the other hand, feel like all these little bits of information, yes, there's 99% nonsense if you just generate a little bit of extra information that hasn't been brought to the light of day. I think we're to something. And so we go from one platform to the next, right? Facebook gave us a little bit of that and then Twitter. And I mean it it's all seems like why is it still around? And it's still around because it seems to fill a basic human need that we we are these information foragers. And as more as we can get, we'll take it, even if it puts us into really strange rabbit holes and, and might actually harm us. We we can't help ourselves. And I think our 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 Anyone who comes after us will be better at this. We we have this problem because we are in this in this um, in this arc of human development and has served us well so far, right? But it's gone into some really when we look at first and second world, where it's gone off into some really really dangerous areas. But we somehow recovered from all this. That's quite amazing. I think we will we'll also cope with that challenge.
1: We'll see. You know, I I think you know I I, I totally appreciate the one percent being good, but the question is. Uh, what about the other ninety-nine percent? Did we do more harm than good ultimately? I don't know. I think Twitter you is, good saying, is like, just about everybody has an opinion, and everyone wants their opinion known. So, uh, and most, and because everybody has an opinion, and they're all more valid. Everyone's opinion is as valid as anybody else's opinion. I, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't think we should be having you know, uh, j- just uh, let me put it this way: every time an athlete or an actor gives me their opinion on politics. I just roll my eyes because I don't. I don't care what they have to say. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, even if I agree with them, they're just one person out of out of. Out of my, no, that doesn't. That that's that's not meant to imply that I might not learn something interesting from what they have to say. But I think that oftentimes uh, this all becomes just inflammatory and causes a lot more harm than it does good. But anyway, that's it's not a video game conversation. Uh,
0: <laughs> we speak <laughs> <started playing> for <laughs> <that>, but... <laughs> Well. I I wanted to hit you with another easy question that's maybe a little more related to to video games. Sure. So video games, a lot of people say, and that's where the original argument came from, if you live in a simulation, if this whole universe is a simulation. And here's the thinking is, and that's how it was explained easily after the white paper came out, um, when, when we have this extreme desire to simulate everything we can, because... That makes that's our neocortex that makes us better and the real situation arrives. So if we go out to hunt an animal, if we can simulate that, our chances of surviving hunting that animal is probably much higher. Now we do video games, before we did all kinds of board games. So we run simulations all the time and our children, in fact, they take longer and longer to get to that stage where we consider them mature enough to play with the real world. They run through endless amounts of simulations, case studies, we call them, in universities and colleges. So it makes a lot of sense to think, well, if we have the strong desire for simulations, that seems to be any intelligent being would have that problem. So, why don't we just simulate more and more? We simulate a whole planet, planetary system, and we go to Mars, you have to terraform it, right? So, we basically mm-hmm. change the whole thing, what's going on on Mars. The whole planet will be terraformed, and we go further and further out, and sooner or later, we're going to just assimilate the whole universe.
1: If they, When they look back on their lives, uh have the misfortune of not having done anything too crazy or too exciting or too interesting. Um, and I think that sim video games before, I don't know if it was really going to answer your question or not. I think for video, video games and movies and books and other forms of, you know, entertain entertainment are, um, an escape from that basically maybe it's a drab reality or maybe it's just boring or maybe it's actually not boring and they need an escape from something which is a little bit too exciting or too, you know, extreme in one way or the other. And so I love the idea of ever increasing, you know, realism in simulation. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by VR. I love it. Uh, I, I, I love being immersed in v- virtual worlds and VR worlds. I, uh, my brother is actually working with some cool guys uh, out in, um, they're in L.A., I think one's in L.A. and I think one's in San Francisco, on um, some some haptic devices for, for uh, haptic and input devices for VR, which are going to make the experience that more immersive so you can feel and see your hands when you're in these worlds. Um and I uh, I don't see, I, don't, I, I would love to see more advanced versions of simulations because I think those simulations also ultimately benefit us in the real world. I mean, just as an example, um, I decided last year, last July, that I couldn't sit home for one more day uh, when we were all sitting home and I decided to go out and become a pilot. And so I, um, you know, fortunately for me, I'm in the financial position where I can you know, spend, spend the money on lessons. And I bought myself an airplane and I, uh, and I, I, I hired an instructor and I went out there and I learned how to fly. Um, and, uh, but now I'm spending a lot of time cause I've gotten my private private license on a simulation. That's where I am now because I need to learn how to fly at an instrument, get an instrument rating. And the best way to fly in to learn your instrument rating is not to spend, you know, 300 400 500 an hour flying your plane to to repeat the same tasks over and over and over again it's using a simulation um and uh that simulation has been very beneficial to me because now i'm learning how to get my instrument rating without having to actually fly the plane um and um you know, but there are simulations which really are, are do even more than that. I mean, if you look at the latest flight simulator that Microsoft put out, that was put out by friends of mine who work at a company called Sobo in, in Bordeaux, France. And it's incredible to me what they've been able to accomplish. They've really done an amazing job of simulating what it's like to fly. And for people that will never have that ability, the people that will never be able to fly their own plane or have a fear of flying their own plane, um, when you play flight simulator, you can take off from from uh, San Francisco and you can and you can land in Miami and and it will feel pretty real and once once VR is added to the mix and once we um uh, you know as we continue to enhance our our, our our graphical immersion and our and our sounds and um and the haptics that come along with uh with better you know input and and you know output devices I think you're going to find that simulation is really has the potential in some respects, as sad as it might sound, to replace travel just in the way, you know, uh, iMessage or WhatsApp has replaced getting on a phone call. Right. Uh, And so but but I think I think in some respects, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think simulation experiences could also ultimately be social. You can meet other people in your in this in this simulated world. In the simulated world, you know, I would love, I, I, I would love to be, you know, I'd love to have be a blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy, but I'm not, right? But in the simulated world, I can be, right? So, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think we role play. I think entertainment is all about role playing. It's just about degrees of immersion. Um, so, generally speaking, I think we're moving in a direction where there are going to be virtual, persistent, very highly immersive worlds that that people can spend most of their lives in if they want to, as long as they remember on occasion to eat, you know, <laughs> but uh, I don't, uh, but I don't necessarily see a problem with that, but, but I'm sure there are people a lot smarter than I am who see a lot of problems with it.
0: Well, it sounds like you're ready for the matrix. You, 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 you <laughs> feel like that's where we should go, right? Um, I find Listen, I
1: have, like... a, I have a pretty interesting life. I travel the world. I, you know, I fly my own plane. I meet great, cool people. But if you told me I could, you know, spend a, a few nights at home traveling to Mars or somewhere else, I, I'd happily do it, you know?
0: Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I am I see that argument because we obviously, we see this with video games. What, what we see in a video game or any kind of simulated the game, it's better than our reality for, as you say, because it's more interesting, less interesting, whatever it is. It gets us out there. And it's like reading a book. Like that's, that also gives us the same, same ability. But if if it one day becomes better than the real thing, and I we don't have a ton of examples for this yet, but I think we, we will get there pretty soon. Why do the real thing if the simulation is, you know, a fraction of the cost and it does pretty much everything what we want. That's, I think is going to become a confounding issue to the next generation.
1: Yeah. Look, I, um, I, I, th- I think you're right. And I, I don't, you know, is it bad? I don't know if it's bad, right? I don't know if it, I mean, I can tell you... Uh, it's safer, and, right? Simulator safer. flying is
0: much safer than actual plane flying.
1: Yeah, and if you get to where you want to go and you're happy with where you've gotten in your virtual world, then I don't see a problem with it, I guess. it's, I, But, um, you know, but we're still very far away from, from, from simulated experiences being equal to real experiences. I think we'll get there, but, um, you know, there's nothing like the real thing still. So... Uh, you know, but 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 for a lot of people who don't have that experience, uh, you know, I don't I don't see why I don't see why not. I mean, it makes me think of what, what was the movie? Uh, Total Recall? Is that what it was? I can't remember what it was. You... It was Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? When yeah. Was wasn't, that, wasn't that wasn't that the one? Was that simulated or was that not simulated? I
0: can't even. I think he couldn't tell. They put memories well, in his brain, and he couldn't tell. Yeah, it was the it problem. Was right? Yeah, yeah. So we'll have that problem very soon, I guess that was very <laughs> prophetic. It's, it's you know it gets hard to we, we used to have these verified sources of truth and now we have so much information that the truth obviously we don't know what the truth is anymore because we can't associate that information with necessarily with the source. if we put some effort into it, but most unconscious thoughts we don't really know. And uh, so we already have this this we, we're losing that ability to really, to really distinguish what, what is kind of an alternated an simulated truth and what is the real truth. Maybe there's, maybe there's several versions of the truth anyways, anyways but the accepted society version of truth, it com- becomes hard to tell. And I think that's why we do all these these, these flip-flops with certain opinions. We started with COVID, right? We flip-flopped on both political sides, for instance, all the time. And then we saw that with but, but, but most trendy issues, they go from 100 degrees in this direction to this side because nobody really can tell the truth and nobody really knows for a while until it calms down a little bit,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yep. So there is maybe maybe simulations will, will. I don't know if they help us to. If, if you know, philosophers had that idea that there is this one version of truth that you can you can get to. That's you you like. So Socrates has argument, right? So he 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 makes that argument about his own immortality because the soul must be different than the body, and he he figured out that way, and he kind of convinces himself just before his death and Fado. And um, so he convinces himself, and that's what, what I'm trying to say, is all these simulations might, might be able to convince ourselves of a reality that doesn't actually exist. That's, that's like the, the, the danger in this, right? So, so kind of we, 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 we play Grand Theft Auto, and we know it's not true, but we play it anyways, and then we, we repeat the same learned behavior in real life. And I think that's what, what a lot of people are concerned of, is that we, these simulations kind of, the common sense goes completely out the window once you, you lose that traction, what is simulation, what's real?
1: Look, you know, I've, I've heard that, obviously, in this space that I'm in, you know, uh, especially with a lot of games being shooter games, being told that, well, if you are shooting a game, you're going to want to shoot in real life. I don't think that's ever actually been proven to be right. In fact, uh, I think that there have been studies, and I don't want to, I, I, I did some research on this years ago, because, uh, because these were questions that were asked of me, and I believe that there are there, there's no proven correlation um, bet- between the two. Um, you know, but, but the, either, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just means that I, that I think that the, that, that the probabilities of something like that are low. But the flip side is there are people who have actually been able to land airplanes in emergency situations because they've landed them on flight simulator. And so, uh, and there are, and my understanding is that, you know, uh, that people are better, people who are good at video games become better surgeons because they have better hand eye coordination. So, uh, although that's not exactly a simulation question, that's more of just a hand eye coordination question. Um, And so uh, I think that from every experience, you're going to have you're going to have new and unique uh, types of outcomes that 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 are a result. So, a lot, like you said, there's good and there's bad that comes out of everything.
0: Yeah, that's very wise, Matthew. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I think that's a good way good to end the podcast. Thanks thanks a lot for coming on. That was awesome. Sure. Thanks well, for thank sharing you. your thank opinions you. and your experience.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It was fun and different. I have to say it was
0: different. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope we get to do this again. Matthew, yeah, all the sure. best.
1: Thank you.